Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the book of Acts. Here, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeffrey Myers will be discussing Acts chapter 22, which is Paul's speech after he is arrested in the temple. The big announcement that we announced last week and we're continuing to talk about now is that our Theopolis Liturgy in Psalter is now available. This new book contains the liturgies that we use for our fellows program as well as our intensive courses, as well as a collection of psalms translated and set for chanting by James Jordan. So if you'd like to sing these psalms with us, you can find a link in the show notes, and you can also find several of these chanted on our YouTube channel. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy and are edified by this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Jeffrey Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Acts 22. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, Jeff Myers, and James B. John. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background making sure that everything is recorded smoothly and gets nicely edited and delivered to our listening audience. Uh, We're in the middle of a series of studies in the book of Acts, and more specifically, we are in the middle of a section, a two-chapter section in chapters 21 and 22. Uh, We covered the first chapter of that section in the last episode, where we have an account of Paul's journey toward Jerusalem. Uh, Like Jesus, Paul sets his face to Jerusalem and makes his way to Jerusalem, even though he knows that uh, he's going to face opposition, and he's going to be bound, given over to the Gentiles. The Jews are going to oppose him. He knows that's going to happen, as Jesus did, and yet Paul sets his face, and in spite of the efforts of his friends to to prevent him, he continues to go to Jerusalem. So he's following in the footsteps of Jesus. When he gets to Jerusalem, he tries to pacify the Jewish opponents who are uh, charging him with being anti-Jewish and teaching uh, against Moses, against circumcision against uh, the temple, and he tries to pacify them by going into the temple and paying the charges for a purification sacrifice for four men who are finishing off a vow. That doesn't work. The plan doesn't accomplish what uh, his friends had hoped it would, and instead it provokes a riot because Paul had been seen in the city of Jerusalem with a Gentile, and it was assumed he brought that Gentile into the temple. I mean, the, the Jews are operating on the assumption that he's dispensed with all the Jewish purity regulations anyway. And so uh, they think Paul would, of course, be willing to bring a Jew, uh, bring a Gentile into the temple. We left, uh, that chapter ends, chapter 20, 21 ends with Paul being taken into custody by the Romans. Uh, but he has a conversation with the Roman commander and asks for an opportunity to speak. So we left Paul with the Romans standing on the stairs of the barracks of the Roman uh, installation there. Uh, and being given permission to uh, speak to the crowd. Uh, And this is the first, as I mentioned at the beginning of last episode, the first of a series of speeches that Paul's going to give. Uh, They're in generally a a judicial setting. He's he's being accused and he's on trial of sorts. This is not a formal trial in this case, but in other cases it will be a formal trial. And he's given a defense. But it's interesting the way that he gives his defense because he's not giving his defense by uh, refuting the charges point by point trying to trying to explain to the Jews why he is uh, uh, why they why they have misunderstood what he's teaching uh, instead 
in this case, it gives a, a, sig- a significant section of this of this speech is an autobiography about his upbringing in Judaism and about his uh, encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Uh, and in the future, uh, in the in the later speeches, Paul spends a lot of time focusing or he refocuses attention really on the resurrection of Jesus and makes that the issue that's at stake in the trial. So it turns into something le- something that's not quite a judicial defense. It's not that Paul's giving forensic uh, speeches in defense of his own actions. That's part of what he's doing. But he really puts Jesus' resurrection on trial, especially beginning in the next in the next chapter where he raises that issue in the midst of the Sanhedrin and divides the Jews against each other. But that becomes the ongoing theme of the, the rest of his speeches. I'm on trial for the hope of Israel. Uh, that refocuses the, the speeches to a theological question rather than just the legal question of whether Paul's been violating the law or has been a disruptive influence. Uh, and it also, uh, that that is a defense against the charge that he's anti-Jewish though, because he claims that his uh, belief in the resurrection of Jesus is in fact a belief in the fulfillment of the promise and the hope of Israel. Uh, that's perfectly consistent with all that Israel had hoped for. Uh, and so it's part of his defense of his uh, Jewishness and of his, and it's a part of his defense against the charge that he's anti-Jewish is to emphasize Jesus' resurrection, but Jesus' resurrection specifically as a fulfillment of promises to Israel. The apostle is quite shrewd here in the first defense he gives in chapter 22 before the crowd here in Jerusalem. Um, He uh, is very careful to make sure that he identifies with them in so many ways as a Jew, um, and especially as someone who is indeed, uh, or was indeed, uh, concerned with law-keeping and with um, the law as he was brought up under the feet of Gamaliel. And he also identifies with them in some sense as a persecutor. He himself was a persecutor. Uh, That comes up early on, uh, where he receives letters from the brothers to go to Damascus. And then at the end, too, um, he makes it clear, even after Jesus uh, calls him and uh, sets him apart, that uh, he refers again to the fact that he was going from one synagogue after another, imprisoning uh, the saints. Um, and yet for all of that, you, would, you might expect a favorable hearing from the crowd, at least, but all it took was one word. Uh, for them to turn on him again in the at the end of the speech in verse 21 when he talks about going to the Gentiles. Paul's reference to his um, training in the law and his being taught under the um, feet of Gamaliel is, again, it gives him some more credibility with them. Gamaliel is mentioned earlier on in chapter 5 as one of the leaders, Pharisees among the council who stands up for the early Christians, or at least gives some sort of defense um, when he advises the council not to take action against them precipitously, but actually to see how things play out. Gamaliel is a very important figure. More generally, he's referenced within the Mishnah. Um, His grandfather was Hillel. So Paul is presenting himself as standing within quite a an important line of um, of Jewish thought and teaching, which would give him a bit more credibility with the assembly. 
Just a, a particular note to add to what Jeff said about the uh, the rhetoric of the of the speech, where he's uh, identifying himself uh, with Jews, both by his own description of himself as a Jew educated by Gamaliel being in the city of Jerusalem and in Hebrew or Aramaic. But also when he talks about Ananias, uh, who receives him in Damascus, he doesn't speak of him as a fellow believer in Jesus or disciple of Jesus, but as somebody who is devout by the standard of the law and spoken of well by all the Jews in verse 12. So even the, the other characters in this account of his, of his uh, conversion are uh, identified in, uh, in relation to Judaism. I've been preaching for uh, I preached several times recently on Acts 26, which is uh, the Paul's defense before Agrippa, and it's the other place where he tells the story of his conversion. So I've been puzzling over what the what role that plays in Paul's ministry and mission because he tells that story a couple of times here. And let me let me give the try to try to express the theory that I've come up with to explain this. I think the background is Paul's conviction. From the Old Testament, that Israel is called to be a light to the Gentiles, and um, that I think is that's what Paul is being converted to, in a sense. As he's describing his conversion, he's talking about uh, going from being a Jew who is zealous for the law, but who in fact opposes the lawgiver, who opposes the Messiah. Uh, but he's being converted to a true Jew, a Jew who actually carries out the mission that Israel had been given from the beginning. So he sees, I think he sees his own story as a kind of type for the Jews that he's speaking to. He says that in in the uh, uh, in his defense before Agrippa that uh, Agrippa, in in a short time you will uh, persuade me to be a Christian. Agrippa says, and he says, I wish that everyone listening to me, not only you, but everyone listening to me, would be such as I am, except for these chains. And it's not just that he wants them to be believers, but he wants the Jews to be what they were called to be, uh, that is to be a light to the Gentiles. And so by telling this story, he's telling the story about how a persecutor of the way himself uh, becomes a follower of Jesus and a light to the Gentiles, a true Jew. And that's what can happen to those who are persecuting him. They can turn from their persecution. Jesus will receive them. And then they can actually begin to fulfill the calling that they've been given to, uh, to uh, carry out the mission to the nations. It's interesting to read this alongside Paul's account of his background in somewhere like Philippians chapter 3 and some of the ways in which he refers to his background in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. On those occasions, he's presenting this as something that he counts loss for the sake of Christ. But here he's using it to gain a sort of rhetorical capital with the people to whom he's speaking. And it's interesting to maybe think about that in terms of the question that's often raised concerning Paul's um, Damascus Rose experience. Is it a vocation or is it a conversion? And from one perspective, it can be presented as a continuation of his existing course but a clarification and a redirection. And in another way, it could be seen as a complete rejection or overturning and moving away from um, into a completely other approach to understanding all of this that he's presenting um, in terms of his Jewish upbringing. Mm. One of the ways you could fill that out is by reference to zeal. 
So he refers to himself in verse three as zealous for God, as all of as all of you are. So that unites them. But I guess it's it's zeal according to knowledge, which is going to be the uh, the distinctive, isn't it, of Paul? The other uh, dimension of the the suggestion uh, that I was developing is that um, because Paul has been turned to Jesus because he is uh, he's a uh, the the, the uh, an apostle of Jesus. Uh, Jesus said, uh, told him back in the beginning of his mission that he was going to be a light to the Gentiles. So when he shows up in Jerusalem, uh, he's been following the course, the pathway of Jesus anyway. When he when he shows up in Jerusalem and he begins to speak to the Gentile to the Jews who are there, Paul is in fact bringing the light of Jesus to them. So there's this parallel between what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus seeing the blinding light and hearing the voice of Jesus and what's happening to this Jewish crowd uh, who uh, don't may not recognize this Paul as the light of Jesus, but he is, and who hear him speaking about Jesus. So they're having a kind of uh, Damascus Road moment. Uh, if they would receive Jesus, then they too would become, again, they would be turned and be, begin to fulfill the mission that God gave to Israel in the first place. So, uh, And I think that's happening all the way through these speeches. Paul is coming as an apostle who's been conformed to Christ, who reflects the light of Christ. And every time he speaks, he's confronting uh, the his hearers, he's confronting his audiences with Jesus, and uh, they're having their own Damascus Road moment. So he's providing them with another opportunity to repent, um, as, as uh, Peter did in First Pentecost. Now here, there's another speech to crowd, about Jesus and um, an opportunity to repent. I'm reminded of what happened uh, at the beginning of this narrative in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, where the disciples' first question to Jesus was, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, well, it's not for you to know times or seasons. And that then becomes something of a foil for the whole book. Uh, the apostles aren't need to bring the message of um of the Messiah, of Jesus, to Israel over these many years. And Paul now is kind of bringing it to a head. Well, he's not kind of, he is bringing it to a head. This will be Jerusalem's really last opportunity to hear and to join with the righteous one and be renewed. Picking up with that uh, connection with Pentecost, Jeff, there's various inversions of it here, I guess. What um, the idea of the message going to the Gentiles is here a source of division and causes great anger. So rather than this um, spirit-inspired unity, um, there is division. And, and there is even uh, at the start of this chapter, the fact that Paul is speaking in Hebrew in such a way that I guess some of the people at least, presumably the Romans, um, wouldn't have been able to understand him. And so there is more of an emphasis, it seems, on the confusion of languages rather than the unity of languages that there is um, in Peter's Pentecost. Jeff, I want to go back to another comment that you made. Uh, uh, I, I think the, it's, it's true that Paul's confronting them. Uh, they have the opportunity to, to repent here. They, they could become, uh, they could have the, the same turn that, Jesus, that uh, Paul has experienced. But I think the, the other side of that, I think, is that uh, Luke and I think Paul in Romans is talking about the success of that effort. The kingdom actually is turned over to Israel, 
it's not turned over to Israel in the sense that every single Jew becomes part of the um, part of the true Israel. I mean, Paul distinguishes between those who are uh, true Jews and those who are uh, uh, Jews in, in interior Jews and exterior Jews. Um, but I mean, just in the previous chapter, we've had James talking about, or at least the, the, the elders in Jerusalem talking about thousands among the Jews who have believed and they're zealous for the law. So they're, uh, the, the mission to Israel has been successful, and it's that remnant of Israel that's been gathered around Jesus that is the core of the mission of the church. Uh, and that's, that, that's the Israel that's actually accomplishing what Israel is supposed to accomplish, that is to be a light to the Gentiles. So I think there's, you still have a to the Jew first and also to the Gentile kind of pattern uh, I don't think it's an unsuccessful mission to the Jews and then a successful mission to the Gentiles. I think God keeps his promises to Israel and there's this large number of Jews who convert and become the core of that mission and become what, what, what Paul wants everyone to be, which is reflectors of the light of Jesus. What do you think of that? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Of course, uh, there is a sifting here. There's a, a threshing that's going on. Um, and yet at the end of the book of Acts, remember, we come back to this kingdom of God where Paul is in Rome and uh, testifying about the kingdom of God to the Jews from the law of Moses and the prophets. They reject it. He quotes Isaiah 6 and says, you guys aren't going to see or understand. And then he says, from now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. They will listen. So there is, I don't think you're denying this. There is something of a transition here, a rejection of the nation of Israel, uh, of maybe the political uh, or the physical Israel, especially located in Jerusalem, and a, a moving away from them. And it's and I guess the only thing I was saying earlier is that the disciples had one expectation going into this in Acts chapter one, and they they had to be schooled in exactly what God was doing, which is of course what Paul says in Romans nine through eleven. Uh, he, he learned what God was up to, uh, and everybody has to. And it wasn't just this simple, uh, we're going to restore the kingdom to uh, national, the Jews in Palestine, and have a new Davidic kind of ruler. Yeah, I think I think you need to keep both of those dimensions. I mean, the, you're right that Acts climaxes with Paul kind of shaking the dust off his feet in regard to uh, Israel, the Jews. But the... Um, that's at the conclusion of a mission that's taken place over several, a couple of decades at least, where Paul has been, uh, and Paul and the other apostles have been successful in gathering in Israel. And I think that that's Absolutely. the that's the part that I don't want to miss. I don't think it's a simply discarding of Israel. At uh, uh, it's not a discarding of Israel. It's a gathering of uh, the remnant of Israel, which becomes all Israel, becomes a true Israel. Yeah, I agree. Good point. We have some new information about Paul's biography here that uh, hasn't been mentioned in Acts, and I don't know that it's mentioned anywhere else or alluded to, is, and that's his uh, trance and vision in the temple, um, which he mentions in verse 17, uh, after he's described his uh, encounter with Jesus and then his encounter with uh, Ananias. He talks about this this partic- this uh, extra vision. Uh, any thoughts about that? Is that, is that mentioned anywhere else? I, I don't think it is, but um, maybe I've forgotten something. I couldn't see. I couldn't see it anywhere else, but I think there are probably some interesting things going on here with the differences of Luke's account of Paul's conversion here to previously. So, I mean, uh, it would have been quite 
common, I guess, for a call to come multiple times to given a prophets or other people, like in Abraham's case, for instance, there is this very repeated um, uh, call and the confirmation of a covenant and so forth. But um, so I, I don't see why Paul couldn't have uh, had multiple encounters with the Lord in, in that sense, sort of confirming what had happened. But it seems then deliberate that um, Paul is making the point that it was in the temple that that call came to him. So far from um, uh, him receiving this in some strange way in some strange place and him being someone who is teaching against the temple, he is now, I think, m- making the point, you know, this this whole thing was born in, in the temple and it's obedience to what he experienced there that has um, launched his launched his mission. Um, uh, another incident where that happens might be um, verse 9. So um, we've got this statement where Paul says they didn't understand the voice of, of the one who was speaking to me. And um, elsewhere, I think it says that they um, – well, okay, so it's translated here as they do not understand. Um, elsewhere, it, it says they, they did not hear. Um, it's, it's the same verb, but just um, it's, it goes with accusative here, but it was the genitive back in chapter 9. Um, and, and so it's, it's generally translated, you know, here in uh, chapter 9 and, and understand here in chapter 22. And um, I wonder if that's meant to um reflect just a a progression uh, over time you know and perhaps even to look forward to the point jeff was making of of how the jews are transitioning into this um mass of of hearing but not but not understanding you know so um uh whereas the message was previously um unheard now now it is it is not understood there's at least among some jews there's a hardening going on and that verse from Isaiah chapter 6 is, of course, um, thematic for Luke's account in Acts. It comes up at the very end. Yeah, I think the, the point that you made about it, it, this taking place in the temple is crucial. And again, I think uh, links up with Paul's overall point, uh, or the I guess I would say what's in the background, which is that what, what he is doing and what the church is doing what is what Israel was always called to do. The temple is always supposed to be a source of life to the Gentiles. It was never supposed to be a tool or a means for isolating Jews from the nations. And so the fact that the Gentile mission begins from this uh, encounter and uh, this vision in the temple fits, you know, Isaiah 2, the, the, the law of the Lord goes out from the, the mountain of the Lord and the nations receive the, the word of the Lord from, from, the, uh, from the mountain, living water flowing out from Ezekiel's temple, that kind of thing. So th- this is in keeping with prophetic images of what the temple is for. And uh, so, yeah, I think that's a, that's a crucial point. We have more description also of the baptism here than we do in chapter 9. And the words that are used are it's a very strong presentation of what baptism means. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Do any of you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I was going to bring that up um, as Paul's interpretation of what happened back in Acts 9. That is a very strong statement. I had an interaction once with a fellow Presbyterian pastor, Presbyter at a Presbyterian meeting, and we were, this was, you know, this was eight, nine years ago when there was a lot of discussion about the efficacy of baptism and 
and all that, a lot of controversy about it. And he said, I don't, I don't understand why we have this phrase in the Nicene Creed, um, one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. He said, I don't, I don't know where, where that is in the Bible. And I referred him to this verse. And he said, well, wait a minute. So he opened his Bible and looked at it and said, hmm, okay, I'd have to think about this one. <laughs> so the, the point at which uh, Paul receives the forgiveness of sins is when he's washed by water by Ananias. At the end of the chapter, we have, uh, again, a, a scene with Paul among Romans, uh, as we did in the previous chapter. Um, the uh, the Roman commander reappears at the end here. Uh, but again, the Romans are, in a sense, um, end up not kind of inadvertently protecting Paul from the crowds. They, they want Paul to be taken away again, um, the same kind of language that the crowds use to dismiss Jesus, but the Romans take them in, take him into the uh, barracks, and um, they're beginning to scourge him when Paul reveals that he's a Roman citizen. He's done this before in Philippi, where he uh, let uh, let the officials know late in the game uh, that they were dealing with a Roman citizen, uh, and he kind of pops it out here at the last moment and uh, escapes from the. Uh, interrogation by torture. Paul is facing a hearing here and he's being judged by the people, but it's important to see how he's presenting himself at the very heart of um, Paul's self-presentation is the fact that he is a witness. And so what is being tested, what is being um, investigated and judged is not just Paul himself, but the one to whom he bears witness, Christ. And Whereas we might see this purely as a matter of um, Paul's story, it's also a continuation of the presentation of Christ. Um, Christ has already been tried by um, the Sanhedrin and by the Gentiles, and now um, he's facing in the mouth of his witness um, another trial before the people. And they have the chance now to come to a different result. Um, so this is a testing of the people. Will they repeat um, the injustice that they can um, perform the first time round. Yeah, that's the contrast is intriguing. Uh, you have uh, you have those parallels certainly going on uh, between Jesus and Paul, but uh, Paul engages in lengthy defenses, whereas Jesus is silent, largely silent before his accusers. Uh, you also you also have Paul again pulling the kinds of tricks that he does, uh, pulling out his. Uh, his citizenship card at the last minute in order to evade punishment, imprisonment, torture at certain points. It's not that, and it's not that Paul is afraid to afraid to die or to be beaten. He's been beaten plenty, but he is uh, knows that the for the sake of the mission, for the sake of the kingdom, it's important that he not be put under torture at this point. So, so th those contrasts are are interesting too. Uh, even though he, even though he's reliving Jesus, he's he's doing it differently, and there's a a different kind of. He speaks a lot more, and he is able to he's able to maneuver more than Jesus attempted to. Well, once again, we 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 stand here in awe of Paul's shrewdness of how. Um, how politically, if you will, savvy he is. Um, he doesn't lie, but he knows when to say what needs to be said uh, here with, uh, you know, pulling out the Roman citizen card, but also in the next chapter, pulling out the Pharisee card. And it's surely for us 
something of a lesson that using your wits in situations like this is something commendable. It's exemplary. And it's, as all of us know who've been in any kind of stressful conflict situation, it is not easy to do. <laughs> it's very easy to be foolish in situations like this. Um, and Paul is, uh, he's just, he's a model, I think, for us. In that respect, it might be a fulfillment of the promise of Christ that in the day when they would be standing trial before these authorities and councils and kings, that the Holy Spirit would give them the words to say. And we talk about Paul being all things to all men, the way in which he, for the sake of the gospel, will be like a Jew to the Jews and uh, he'll be like one not under the law to those who are the Gentiles. And there's something about that which is designed to win people over, to be approachable, to present the message of the gospel in a way that is understandable to them. But there's also a chameleon-like character to Paul, the way in which, as you were mentioning, Jeff, he can, one moment he can pull out the Roman citizenship card, and then the next moment, the fact that he's a Pharisee. Um, and you never actually pin Paul down. There's something of the character of the one who is born of the Spirit, um, the way that the Spirit blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from, where it goes. People may know where Paul comes from, but there's these all these confusions surrounding him. They don't know that he's a Roman citizen. He's originally presumed to be an Egyptian. Um, and then there are these other confusions that surround him that he uses to his benefit. And there's a shrewdness and a, a depthness in disguise that... I think you find throughout his ministry. Yeah. And the shrewdness is largely a matter uh, here and elsewhere, a matter of timing. And I think Jeff, that's where, that's where the difficulty comes in is, uh, is uh, uh, having your wits about you in order to know the timing of certain revelations when things are, when things are to be said and when they're not to be said yet. And uh, that requires, uh, I think uh, not just shrewdness, but, a really impressive level of courage, and mm. uh, I mean, the, the because the the tendency would be in you're you're in this kind of situation where you're about to be beaten, or you're surrounded by a mob, and uh, you want to hide. You want to say what needs to happen so that you can quiet things down enough so that you can uh, at least put it off for a while, in order to have the level headedness and shrewdness that that uh, that uh, Paul demonstrates here. He has to be aware of what's happening and not be swayed and fearful of what's going on around him so that he can speak the right thing at the right moment. Um, and that's, there's, a, uh, there's a, a, a kind of level-headedness that uh, I, can, I can only dream of. <laughs> yeah. And, and in this, he is like his master. Uh, Alistair just mentioned John 3. Uh, the spirit, one who's led by the spirit, hears a sound, but you don't, you don't see it. And so, Jesus, that's ultimately about Jesus, and Jesus is the master of this. In fact, it's what gives people pause sometimes when they're reading through gospel narratives. Like, wh why didn't he come out and just say this or that or the other thing? And he um, he does things, he says things at just the right time, um, and also with. Um, just the amount of ambiguity 
that causes people to think, or at least ought to call people to think. Not everybody is is led to rethink their position or their relationship with him. Some of them just react in anger and and plotting to kill him. But um, yeah, so Paul is remarkably like Jesus. Now we we often contrast Paul with Jesus when Paul comes to his four trials here at the end of Acts. He makes lengthy defenses, and Jesus is silent. And yet, what we do have in all the gospel narratives is Jesus' defense all through the four gospels before he gets to that fact. And he will say, look, I've been with you long enough. I've told you many times. I don't need to say it again. You know who I am. You know what I've said. Um, and so there is there is that contrast here with Jesus and Paul. I think that Alistair's comment about uh, the chameleon quality of Paul is, is really interesting uh, at, in a couple of levels. One, in terms of mission, obviously. There's a and, and I'm thinking of this in terms, also in terms of identity. Uh, I mean, there's uh, Paul knows who he is. Um, the life that he lives, he lives by faith in the Son of God. He knows that he's Christ's instrument. That's the that's the that's the thing that shapes his life. That's who he is. But subordinate to that, you have all these other these other uh, kinds of uh, masks and these other kinds of uh, uniforms that he puts on at different times for the sake of accomplishing certain things. And I think that, as Jeff was saying, that's a that's a, a, a model for Christian missionaries now, Christian ministers, uh, both in both senses, in the sense that you have to have your identity in Christ, and that has to be the focus, that has to be what shapes your life and mission. But beneath that, there are all kinds of other connections and identities you might make use of in certain settings. I think that there's a there's a couple of things that kind of um, erode that that proper relationship, and w- one would be kind of over identification with um, you know maybe an uh, an over identification with an ethnic group or an over identification with an, uh, a national identity, both of which are real and both of which are a part of you know that's one that's one of the colors that Paul turns. He turns Jewish in certain settings. He turns Roman citizen in other settings. But that's all. That doesn't shape who he is, and that's not really driving his mission. So we can get caught up in this identification with other, with these subordinate identities. I guess we can, we can, uh, we can uh, make our primary identification there rather than in Christ, uh, and that 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 shapes or distorts the way that we carry out mission, our mission and ministry. That's. Very relevant now in America, maybe not so much for Peter, I mean, for uh, Alistair and James and where they're at, but right now with politics and political positions and political parties, um, on the one hand, it's very easy to get swept up and that becomes our identity, whether it's on social media or um, or even just amongst friends. is we We identify so closely with one party or one candidate or the other that our Christian witness is swallowed up. On the other hand, um, some people are so afraid to have any kind of connection with a candidate or a party that they end up being um, uh, rather uh, or cowardly with regard to certain real, uh, real, real uh, questions and concerns and issues before um, our, our, our culture, our community. So that's, it's a, it's a balancing act. It's a very, it's a dance. It's, it's, it's not easy to accomplish that. And, and sometimes you'll be thought to be, uh, identifying too strongly with, uh, one, 
uh, one set of people. And sometimes you'll be thought that, hey, why don't you come out and uh, join this Trump rally, this Trump parade <laughs> that we're all in, waving our flags or whatever, Biden, Harris parade. It's, it's very difficult to navigate that in a responsible and productive and missional way as Christians. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.